Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. I almost forgot to say the Christopher, so I almost said TDPS Presents, and then I was going to stare at you until you said my name. <laughs> and it was once more going to be a fucked up opening and a failed podcast. Wow, you really have high standards. <laughs> I know. You listen to most of the podcasters, like the microphone goes, Hey, is it on? Is it on? Is it on? Is it on? This is our podcast. <laughs> Don't bang on the mic. Don't bang on the mic. Don't touch the pop filter. Anyway, welcome back to Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club, which we are right? doing again this week on TDPS Presents. Love True Crime Christopher TV and Club. Eric. And I'm just going to say at the top of the show, because if you've listened to us before, you know this is the first thing. I'm going to zero in on in our discussion of mansions and murders. Spoiler alert. Great exploitations. If you want to pause the podcast now and go watch the show or stream it online, it's available on Amazon and on other platforms. It is season one. There is only one season of Mansions and Murders. So it's easy to find. Episode five, Great Exploitations, as I said. I believe, and I'm just going to say this, I don't think it gets us too far ahead of the conversations we like to have about these pieces, but thanks to this episode of television, I have invented a new term that oh. we are going to use. Oh, oh, yes. that's big. This is big news. A new yeah, term. Yeah, a new term. That I'm the real challenge will phrase, be, will we remember it next time? Or will we be able to pronounce it next time? Because the phrase is, are you ready? I am. Reencraptacular. Reencraptacular. Re oh. It is reenactments that are craptacular. Yeah. So bad that they require their own term, reencraptacular. All right, well, maybe we won't put it on a t shirt or a dinner plate. I don't know. It could, it really has hashtag written all over it. Every time I say we have seen the worst reenactments ever, we then several weeks later see. The worst reenactments new ever. Standard yeah. that wig, honey. That wig. Oh my god. Okay. The, okay. Okay. Yeah. That. <laughs> so. So. This is the story. Spoiler alert. Of Brooke Astor's final years, essentially. Brooke right? Astor was the toast of New York society Miss for a Manhattan. really long time. Mm -hmm. For a really long time. Just how long, Eric Shaw Quinn? I don't As actually, the senior member of this podcast, how long was Brooke Astor the toast to, of Manhattan? I'm too old to remember. Um, I don't actually know the, the answer to that. I, I don't remember when she married Mr. Astor, but she was always kind of a, a bell of the ball kind of character anyway. And then she married, her third husband was Vincent Astor. Mm -hmm. and the Astors sort of were the first 
New York real estate moguls. They built the Waldorf and mm-hmm. I think the San um, – what's the other one that – not the San Regis. What, San Regis, is that the – I honestly don't know. I don't know their New the York – I only six. know Astor Place with There's the giant one. Starbucks. That's what's, what I know. What's the other one, the – not the Woolworth building. No, I actually stayed there when Pamela and I were doing book tour. The, is it the St. Oh. Regis? It's the St. something or another. The Anyways, Saint- over on 6th. Um, yeah. I was just going to start making up hotel names. So the St. Pierre, is that a hotel? It, it, it's no. right around the corner from where you guys used to have a condo. Oh, so it's in Midtown Manhattan. Okay. Yeah. It's not the Waldorf. It's, it's not whatever. Coming. This they is not. They keep saying they're going to build one here and they keep not doing it mm. on Sunset. Okay, anyway. Anyway, it doesn't make any difference. They they were sort of the original right. um, Robber Baron uh, age, gilded age. Right. Uh, real estate moguls of New York, and they continued to be really wealthy. And so she became, first she was, you know, his wife in Paramore, and certainly the toast of society there. And then when he passed away, she was left with an enormous fortune and an enormous found charitable foundation, which she really took to. Mm-hmm. It gave her sort of a purpose in life, and she became really came into her own when she was allowed to be, be the beneficiary, the philanthropist, benefiting all of these um, New York institutions and organizations. And, and it really was the time that she—I think that's really when she— Mm-hmm. Blossom. She was Bef- always quite something. Before then, she was working as a book critic, right? She was working as a book critic for she was Vogue. A, she was a writer. Yeah, yeah. she did a, a number of things. You know, fashionable things, but still, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Was it books critic? I think they mentioned at some point her her biography she is did, very truncated at the was, top of the she show. Was a, she was. She did. She was a writer. She worked yeah, as she a writer was. for Vogue, I believe, and it was critic. Yeah, it was probably books. I will say we make a commitment that we don't do a lot of side research on our own, but there was one thing that I needed to look up after watching wow. this episode. Um, they uh, th- One of the interview subjects is uh, a writer. He's described as a friend and author named John Richardson, a uh, very sort of uh, dignified British man who appears consistently throughout the hour yeah, of television. He's, he's apparently written a book about it. Huh? I, well, I wanted to know because I thought whenever I see in some of these specials, I know how these specials are put together, as do you. I know how this works. Well, they get whoever will say the shit they want them to say on camera, and sometimes the friend is not really a friend. Oh. But I, I Googled John Richardson and he was actually a very well connected man. He actually died after this was filmed. He opened the first U.S. You think office. This is what killed him? Of Christie's. Yeah, I think Mansions and Murders killed him. Well, you know, there's no it other. It was the reenactment. Yeah, it was the it was re- that wig. He heard Rean Craptacular. Exactly. Yeah, that wig. <clears throat> so he uh, published a very famous biography of Pablo Picasso, who he knew personally. So he was a muckety muck, and he was probably and a friend of authentic hers. and actually he was a, friend a friend of, of Brooke he Astor's. Was an associate, and and her friends were like. Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller mm. and the um, De La Rentis, the is it Oscar De La Renta that was the designer, the fashion designer? I think they meant, yeah, and I think that's the designer, but yeah. I think they and mentioned he him in was, passing. He and his wife were very close to, and they were actually, they they didn't get mentioned much in this, but they were instrumental in this. They were, they, they played a very pivotal role in 
activating Philip anyway. I feel like there was this was a much bigger story than one hour of television could accommodate. It really was. And you read about it in Vanity Fair Vanity years Fair ago? Vanity Fair did a yeah. gigantic write-up of it. We should look and see if this is covered on Vanity Fair Confidential. We could do a... We could do a point-counterpoint. Yeah, we could do a follow-up and see if they do a better job of telling this story. Um, My favorite... Just right up front was they apparently got a lawyer that they were going to use to uh, describe this. He's right at the beginning, and he had the worst case of pink eye that I've ever oh, seen. Oh, is that why? And then he's never seen again. He oh. apparently couldn't stand it. His eyes just, I just felt, I just did hurt to look at him. It was like, oh, honey, you need to go put some ointment on that I and lie in a dark room. I didn't realize that's what I was, because I put in the notes, I said, Fred Haffitt's attorney appears for 10 seconds and never again, and they don't say who he was representing. Or either. anything, or how yeah. he was connected to the case. He like says one thing, and then he's gone. Right, right. And we never see him again. But it was like the worst conjunctivitis I have ever. It was just he just oh. looks like oh. Honey, oh well, you my know, God! I don't see conjunctivitis. He just, he, <laughs> I look I just beyond see a guy people's, with really watery eyes. I just saw a guy with really watery eyes. I got well. You know, it's a pain in the ass when they introduce attorneys into this thing. Or I'll say it's a pain in the ass for me when I try to do show notes because to avoid spoilers, they don't ever tell you who they are representing. So they begin to give you all this information at the top of the episode because attorneys have a tendency to talk a lot. But so I was glad Which to see him thing. fade away. Not if they're talking out of turn about. Their clients necessarily, but well, particularly if their clients are us. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you're the client, right? Totally. I don't want them talking out of All right. about me. So our story begins with Brooke Astor at age ninety-one, and if they described her as spry any more frequently in the special than they did. Uh, I don't know what but thread was, I'm going to put there, but I was, was sick of hearing the word spry. I think it was part of why she was such a toast, why she was such a remarkable figure, because despite the fact that she got older, she you know she was still a slip of a girl and uh, very fashionable and very right. uh, chic and very much out and about and not at all. You know, like she wasn't having to be lifted around places. She was still up and around and really. Um, a happening force in New York City, even at her advanced age. She's worth over $100 million at her advanced age. And $100 million at not this time, like at a time earlier than now. Like, when did this take place? This special travels through the years. I will say the first date I identified was the hiring of Alice Perdue as her office manager. And Alice Perdue is interviewed probably more than anybody else during the special. She's really their source for Yeah, she's everything. kind of the, the anchor and for that, the piece. That happened in 1993. So yeah, it's a hundred over $100 million in the 90s when like there was one billionaire. You know, yeah. like so it, that was a, that was more money than it is now. She's got a palatial two-story apartment on Park Avenue where she enjoys a small army of domestic staff. Uh, in keeping with the re theme of this, the domestic staff in reenactment is shown as serving her a salad that looks, I'm going to say, like a bag of lettuce that they just emptied into a bowl with I some with cantaloupe. broccoli florets and... Um, <laughs> And uh, hearts of palm, or maybe um, artichoke hearts, got up in it, and they put it in her in this huge silver bowl that they and take they the lid say, off. And they say it's your favorite. favorite, and she's like, "Oh!" And she's a sixty-year-old actress trying to act like a ninety-year-old woman, and she's in a terrible, 
terrible wig. And I mean, just one of the worst I things I have ever seen in my such life. Such a problem with the reenactment on this one. Oh my yeah. god, the wig was just—it was some. It was really see, Christopher. I the thing I love the terrible reenactments. <laughs> it's one of the things that I particularly enjoy. No, on I these do not. Shows. I just think when like that wig came on, and I went, "Oh, this is going to be so much fun." This is one of the most famous women in the world and probably one of the most photographed famous women in the world. And they showed one. two. Two. Or one. I don't know. Yeah, two, I think two archival photographs of her. One Which of her with the butler young. and one of her with her grandson. Yeah. Well, oh, and, the then, and then one. So three. One of her when she was very young. Yeah. What we learn about her past is that she had two husbands before Vincent Astor. And by one of them, she had a son named Tony. But that husband is alleged to have literally broken her jaw. So good that she kicked him to the curb. And then she married again to a man named Buddy Marshall, who her son Tony just adored and loved so much that he took the man's last name. He became Tony Marshall. And then Vincent entered the picture. And for reasons which are not really made clear to us, Vincent really didn't care for Tony. Well, I think it was about being the heir. You think? I think it had more to do with that. He didn't want, um, he wasn't going to make um, Tony his heir. He wasn't his son. And so he didn't want to pass on the Astor fortune and the Astor everything Mm -hmm. to somebody who wasn't his natural. That was my take on it. Do we know if Vincent had other children and from other marriages? I don't remember that. They're not mentioned. None of that is mentioned. And I think... it, I, it doesn't play into it, so I wouldn't imagine so, but um, maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's very possible, but I, I think, and the other thing that they, I don't think they mentioned was, I believe, part of the reason that um, that Tony had a military career was they sent him away to military school. Mm. Like, he was sent out of their lives wow. in order to accommodate Mr. Astor's, I don't know if it was dislike, but just, he didn't really take to him. He really, he really didn't. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And pitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So we've mentioned Brooke Astor's two-story palatial Park Avenue apartment and her small army of domestic staff. The and other the property, terrible people playing and all, the of terrible parts, all of these terrible reenactors. Although the woman who played the 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 private secretary was actually pretty good. No, she wasn't. No, don't don't. No. Oh apologies. come on. No apologies. By no. comparison, she to was. the rest of the. I actually thought the gentleman playing her butler was probably the best. Oh, out of the crew. you're right. He yeah. probably was. And uh, he also looked the most like the butler because they do show one of the three pictures they show of Brooke Astor. The butler's in one, and he looked like the actor. But the other property that looms large in all of this, and I, you know, how Eric Shaw Quinn and I love us some properties. Oh yes. 30 miles north of the city of Manhattan, she enjoys an estate called Holly Hill. 
Oh, yeah. And it is 65 acres, and it uh, she adores her gardener who works there in her garden. So he is one of the interview subjects, is interviewed quite frequently. His name is Ramon Acosta. And um, she goes to Holly Hill, it sounds like a lot in her old age, possibly every weekend, but she wanders the gardens and is doted on by her staff, and it is very precious to her, this estate foreshadowing for what is to come. Yeah, she has a lovely life. Yeah. She has a really lovely life. She's an old woman with a bunch of money and a lovely life. So, then... Alice Perdue is hired as her office manager, and what Alice Perdue quickly discovers is that her son Tony, who is now getting on up there himself, is keeping somewhat of a tight fist on her financial affairs. And Tony is constantly... He runs the foundation. He runs the foundation, and he is constantly pushing the narrative that uh, to his mother, he is constantly saying, we're almost broke. And then to everybody else, including Alice Perdue, he is saying, my mother is a spendthrift and she has to be completely reined in and controlled. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's going to drive us into the poorhouse, blah, 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 blah. There don't seem to be a lot of facts to support either narrative. And Alice says that um, Brooke, who is in this moment of mentally sound mind and body, is constantly coming to her in a state of confusion saying, Tony says we're broke. Are we really broke? And Alice Perdue will open up the books and say, only if $65 million in the bank is broke. And then she will go out and buy some more dresses, and then she will feel guilty about buying those dresses because her son is constantly telling her that things are worse than they yeah, actually are. She says are. of them that she thought that she um, loved Tony, but she didn't think she, that he that she liked him very much. That she didn't like him very much. And the grist of this relationship is what I wanted more on. Because as you continue into the story, I'm like, this is not, this is about more than a son trying to get control of his mother's finances. There is some real animosity here. And it's historic. Yeah. You know? I think so. And I think part of the being sent away Mm -hmm. and kind of um, farmed off into the military and not really allowed to be a part of the family. I mean, he could see the life that she was living. It was very public Mm -hmm. and very grand, and he was really not a part of it. And I think that must have landed. Yeah. So he gets married. And to to her, her minister's wife. Who, in the narration of the episode, is... I, I, this is a quote. I wrote this down to make sure. They describe her as Tony's, quote, no-class third wife, Charlene. She really was. Charlene is a piece of work. Uh-huh. Like, I I don't know the woman personally, but, like, every word I have read on this story, all of the Vanity, the Vanity Fair article, like, if they could have drawn and quartered her, I think they might have. Like, she really becomes more and more the villain of the piece as you go along. But just not a particularly nice person. She was married to... Brooke's minister. And schemed, while still married, right. to ensnare Tony, who was mm-hmm. older than her and older, and she saw as her way into the um, Astor Fortune only to discover that Brooke wasn't going to let him into the Astor Fortune either. Either. And so the situation she discovers that she's in is that if Tony dies before his mother, the trust fund goes to charities, Charlene not to her. gets nothing. Charlene gets nothing. Now, whether that was in place before Charlene entered the picture or after Charlene entered the picture was not exactly clear to me, but it's in place. <laughs> and, and P.S., 
Brooke hates her. Hates her Brooke and makes no secret of is it. Is embarrassed that that this has happened. That he that her, her son married her minister's wife and broke up their marriage. Like right. she's she's horrified by the whole thing and really doesn't like the woman and kind of sees through. Her. And let me interject here at the risk of saying something that may come across as a little looksist. If you're typecasting this story in your head, listening to it, and you think that Charlene is some lithe young seductress beauty, oh no, she is not. She is a perfectly fine-looking woman, but she is a woman of size and age, and she is not some little Lolita who is gray blonde page boy like she's. And that was a pretty accurate casting. It was because they do show some pictures of Charlene. I think. I think. Do they show any pictures of Charlene, or did I I break our rule and Google them anyway? Whatever. They look somewhat alike. The do we actress. have a rule about Googling pictures? I think we had a rule when we did the Vicki Morgan case, the Vanity Fair Confidential episode. There was a book I bought that I really, I haven't read it yet, but that really takes a deep dive on the case. And I, we said no reading of books or outside material before we sit down at the table to discuss the did show. Did we say that? I don't know. I feel like we did. Sounds so serious. Well, you know, maybe We're not very serious. Maybe it was one of those things I sure said and us? you said yes, yes, sure, dear. Oh, yes, it absolutely. was like the it was yeah, like the the um the dehydrator, the um What's the dehydrator? Whatever that thing is you gave me for Oh, Jesus Christ. The food <laughs> the food wrapper that I thought was like going to be this amazing gift because we saw It's a vacuum. Uh, it's not a dehydrator. Yeah, it vacuum seals. You can seals. either use make Omaha steaks or vacuum seal your own sweaters. Anyway, I can't talk about that as a disastrous Christmas present that I got you. I'll this open year. it one day. Almost destroyed our friendship. It really had no impact on it whatsoever. Okay, so Charlene marries Tony. Brooke hates Charlene, makes no secret of it. Um, And then in 2000, when Brooke is 98 years old, she is diagnosed with early Alzheimer's disease. And I'd just like to pause and say, early? I know, like... Like, 98? Like, I I don't wish Alzheimer's on anybody, but that doesn't seem like early onset to me. Like, 98, how long were you expecting to live? I I, I think the early refers to the severity of the Alzheimer's itself. Like, advanced Alzheimer's is complete mental decay. I see. So it's like modern philosophy actually takes place in the... (laughs) It's not the 17th century. I know it's hard when you're 98 years old to consider a lot of things early in your life. It really was like, I heard that and I thought, hmm. But given how long she's going to live, it does sort of make sense because she's got, spoiler alert, she's got some years left. Like it's It's still a tragic thing and it does begin to have an impact on her. She becomes, she's not completely incapacitated by it, but she is forgetful and, um, a little less, a little hazier yeah. than she has been. So Tony, but she's also 98. So Tony decides to mark this sad occasion by selling one of her most valuable pieces of art for $10 million and giving himself a nice fat commission of around $2 million. And that's the big fulcrum on which the Vanity Fair story turns, is the uh-huh. sale of that picture. Yeah. And to get back to the terrible reenactments... <laughs> Which I cannot let go of. Terrible. This art deal is depicted as <laughs> it's taking place over the course of about 30 seconds. He brings a woman in a sleeveless dress to a cardboard butcher paper wrapped painting and she tucks it under her arm and leaves with it like 30 seconds later. And I just, I and feel like the real transaction. The yeah, yeah, because they couldn't afford the prop of what the painting was going to be or they couldn't license the image. I, I don't know. Can't, I can't imagine. Like, I, 
I don't know. And they, they didn't. It make was a big the dogs thing. playing poker. You know it that famous painting. It was. It was um, I think it was like a parade on Park Avenue. I can't remember who. It was lovely. It was a lovely painting. They really featured it in like I say, in the Vanity Fair thing. But the thing that they didn't make as big a, a fuss about in the in the show, but one of the, the problems with that was that it had already been promised to, to the, the Met, Metropolitan Museum. Which is of one Art. of her favorite charities. They were very vague about that in the show. It was almost like they thought that wasn't entirely the truth. That's the reason that so many of these celebrity people began to get their hackles up. Because he sold the painting that had been promised to the Metropolitan And that it was her favorite painting and didn't really tell anybody. Like, they didn't know that it was gone until later, but it was that realization. See, that's hostile. That really... That is hostile. I'm going to sell it, it, your favorite painting. You know, like, that is, he is trying, he's not just trying to get money, he's trying to punish her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um... Uh, in 2002, she celebrates her 100th birthday at a party thrown by David Rockefeller, and everybody says it is a bittersweet occasion because they can tell that the Alzheimer's is progressing, and she is trying to hide it is at the party. Is that where they did the poem? No, that's later. There are a lot of parties in this one. Oh. There were lunches. Well, and par- the Knickerbocker Club luncheon, which oh, is coming up, the is where they force her to that read the poem. Horrible. The, I think nothing really terrible happens at this party, other than David and, or excuse me, not David, Tony and Charlene try to present themselves as her beloved children, and they present flowers to her from the Prince of Wales and the reenactress. Mimes not wanting to accept the flowers from Charlene in a scene of great tension and it's drama. really terrible. It was one of the worst scenes in the whole, was, in all the reenactments. Yeah, that may have been one of the worst, but it was also a point at which a lot of her really high toned society friends began to see the effects of the Alzheimer's. Like, yeah, they said it was clear that she was she couldn't remember, but that she was trying to play it off as though she wasn't as. Right. Quite as hazed out as she probably was. So around this time, her household staff starts to become increasingly suspicious of Tony and Charlene, and they band together and they buy a baby monitor to place in her bedroom so that they can, you know, monitor her health, but also to eavesdrop on any conversations Tony and is having this when, with her. before she had the accident? Uh, no, I, I skipped over that. Good catch. Yeah, in 2003, she falls and breaks her hip and her health begins to decline and Tony takes over the finances more aggressively and that's when the staff bands together and says... And it's when... The, part of the reason for the baby monitors, the baby monitors were sort of, I, I got the impression, a happy accident. They put them in there and they started to hear what he was saying. They were monitoring her right? because she had fallen and was incapacitated largely and he was not doing much to take care of her. He would just show up to try and bully her into signing shit. Because he has gotten rid of her attorney and replaced him with a new attorney. I think his name was Francis Morrissey. Remember that name. And Francis Morrissey's reputation is quite literally for getting old women to sign away their money. That's like on his shingle outside his office door. I get old rich women to sign away their money. Old widows swindled here. (laughs) Old widows swindled here. Exactly. Um... I would have to say this reenactor is actually probably pretty good because he's got teeth. the wolfish grin those down. Those teeth. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes, he definitely had. Those teeth were terrifying. Yeah, exactly. So they abolished the trust fund. They basically convinced Brooke to abolish the trust fund that's holding the money that Tony is supposed to inherit when she dies and give him the no, money No, it's outright. the money that's supposed to, that's earmarked for charity. Holy shit. Wow. 
I thought yeah. it was just the trust fund and that they, was holding and they his stopped, money. And they stopped paying the charities. Oh, my and God. They, stopped, they started cutting payments to stuff and shortchanging people. And I mean, they, it was really, it was yeah, bad. Totally. It was very chicanery. Wow. They, uh, that's different. That is different. I did not interpret that correctly. Yeah. She had money, and then there was a trust. They were two different things. So I'm getting to the point in this story when I'm watching where it's like, why were they? Why are Tony and Charlene not expecting a huge public reaction to what they're doing to this incredibly high-profile person? You know, this famous. You know, the the brazenness and the arrogance of them believing that they could get away with this without anybody noticing is really shocking to me. But anyway, I don't know if there's a good answer to that question. Well, I think a lot of it had to do with with Brooke's age. Yeah. She had reached a point where she was she had fallen. She was incapacitated. She had Alzheimer's. Everybody knew that. And she was 100 and something years old. So if she wasn't out at 21 every day for lunch, they kind of understood. She right. was beginning to withdraw just naturally, mm-hmm. as you do, as you get to be really, really old. She was. Right. And not in the best of health. And they're obviously using her Alzheimer's to contradict whatever story she gives anyone about what she's signing and over. I don't know that they necessarily know that. And I don't know that they've kept as close a tra- tab on it as they might have because, you know, the, the out of sight, out of mind. And honestly, I don't think anybody imagined that this was happening. Mm-hmm. I think part of the outrage when it did, when the the feces hit the fan, mm-hmm. was the realization of what they had actually done. What they'd managed to get away with, yeah. Well, the staff is getting suspicious, and I think the baby monitors are a big part of that because they're overhearing the conversations where they are convincing Brooke to sign all these papers at the hands of the new attorney. Right. She ultimately signs a codicil to her will, which abolishes the trust, as we just talked about, right. gives and Tony all the money. That the, the secretary was particularly shocked by that. Right. That's Alice Perdue, the office manager, who has been talking up a storm in this documentary from the first opening frame. And then comes the luncheon at the Knickerbocker Club, which you After were talking about earlier. The swindle. Why don't you and paint this hat. picture? Oh for my us. God, that hat! Oh God. But honestly, the hat was a pretty fair representation. The wig it's the was not. The wig. It's the wig. She didn't have hair like the that. The Wig was just horrifying. The, but the but the hat was. That was yeah. That wasn't too unbrook. But yeah, they made her. They had apparently written this poem, this ode to Tony, mm-hmm. and forced her to read it, um, I guess, into a mic for the whole room. She was this doddering old lady on, you know, with Alzheimer's, and they had her read this, you know, poem about mother love and devotion and how he had taken care of her and saved everything. And she clearly did not write this poem. She could hardly no. string a sentence together at this yeah. point. They, it was obvious she couldn't have written the poem, and it was a sentiment that anybody who knew her knew wasn't really how she felt. And it was, yeah, it was a really sort of, it was like trotting out a trained monkey. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show, no spaces, and we'll do our best 
to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Okay, so to recap, Brooke Astor is in her early hundreds now. Um, Her Alzheimer's is advancing. Her son Tony and his wife Charlene are taking over her finances more aggressively. They've gotten her to sign a. They've they've gotten the shark attorney brought in. They've gotten her to sign a codicil to her will, which abolishes the trust fund that was funding all the charities she was supporting. And then, Tony and Charlene do the unthinkable for anyone who knows and cares about Brooke Astor. They shut down her estate, Holly Hill, and they fire all of her beloved staff. Yeah. Boom. And so she is living as a virtual prisoner in her Park Avenue apartment. It's a beautiful, it's a gilded cage, but right. it is whatever. She had a private chef, and now she's eating canned peas. And, and the thing that really, Alice Perdue, the office manager, is still in the mix, but the thing that gets her, that pushes her over the edge, is they fire her chauffeur in Manhattan. And, they, and Alice Perdue says, her chauffeur, Brooke's chauffeur, was her last link to the outside world. He would put her in the car and just drive her around to get her out of the apartment, uh, to bring her to medical appointments. Right. And so by firing him, it wasn't just about eliminating a luxury. It was about it was a luxury, but it was about getting rid of her connection to the outside world. Yeah. It was so she was really a prisoner by this point. And yeah. and living in elegant squalor. She was in a fabulous apartment, but it was Mm -hmm. filthy. She was filthy. She wasn't cleaned regularly. They were not getting, she was not getting her medication on a regular basis. They were not taking care of her. And they were starting to, you know, appropriate things of hers, jewelry and such for Charlene Mm -hmm. and things that they wanted for themselves from Brooks. So they were living very well. They were living much better. And Brooke was living you know, like a pauper in a prison. And then they made what I think was their fatal mistake. or And this may have just been the bias of the special that we watched. They fired Alice Perdue, who knew everything. She knew where she all knew the, the books, bodies were buried. She knew where all the bodies were buried. And their excuse for firing her was telling her basically that she wasn't savvy enough with computers because this was such a computerized digital operation, swindling an old woman out of her fortune. And they said they needed somebody younger who was, you know, better with better with computers, which was, you know, outrageous given her track record with the family. So by now it's 2005. Brooke is 103 years old. She's living in the miserable conditions we just described. And her butler, Chris Ely, who was fired when they shut down Holly Hill. And probably her favorite. And he decides to sound the alarm. And he sounds the alarm by reaching out to Brooke's grandson. And this is when he enters the picture for the first time. Tony's actual son. Yeah, Tony's son, Philip Marshall. And he discovers the conditions Brooke is living in, and he is absolutely horrified. And he begins, he engages all the staff and wants to talk to them and hear about their experiences. They tell him everything they've witnessed, everything that they've seen. Um, he takes pictures documenting the living conditions in the apartment. And he brings in Brooks' friends. Yes. The toast of New York society. Absolutely. And they are 
really upset. He files a lawsuit for guardianship of Brooke, and the two friends, just probably two among many, who join him in the lawsuit are Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller. Yeah. Ever heard of them? So a billionaire and a world-famous politician and, and intellectual. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, and the De Laurentiis were, like, they were upset about that painting. Oh, my God, when that woman went in that apartment and that painting was gone and there was pizza boxes and crap all over the, yeah, she was, that was when she lost it. I think they actually, they didn't say it in the show, but I think they actually took her. Yeah. I think that the De Laurentiis actually took her to their house. There is a mention of her... her up and dressed her up and like was like, no, no, you're not living like this anymore. The special says that Philip filed the lawsuit for guardianship, but they also say that the actual guardian was a good friend of hers, and I think it may have been one of the De Laurentiis. They say the name so quickly that I didn't catch it, but and they don't interview anyone from that family, but... That may, that fits, Maybe I think, so. with what they say in the special. The immediate effect of the lawsuit is that the paparazzi immediately begin hounding Tony and Charlene. Which is great. Which is lovely. It's a revenge piece, and you know how I love a revenge piece. And they face criminal charges. Yeah. Holly Hill is reopened, and her staff is rehired, largely thanks to Philip, the savior grandson. Her wonderful gardener is brought back, and yeah. she gets to enjoy her flowers. She gets to live... The kind of the last few years of her life as she should have, as mm-hmm. she could have, if her son hadn't been such an impatient monster. A monster. Just, a, mo- a rageful monster. Yeah, There's rage in these really, things. Yeah, just, Letting your elderly mother live in, in squalor is about punishing her. It's not about you don't want the responsibility. It's when, I think when you there should is be no punished. reason for it. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're, Broke ass people. Well, yeah. then that's one thing. But to allow your mother to live in squalor when there's hundreds of millions of dollars available, mm-hmm. that's really shocking. Yeah, exactly. So in August 2007, Brooke is now 105 years old. She becomes seriously ill with pneumonia. And this was the part of the special where I could have used a little bit more information because it was surprising, but they allow Tony to visit her. I, this actually scared me because I thought, well, maybe I don't remember this part like, of the story. You thought this I thought he was going to put a pillow over her face. Yeah, because like we're at this point in the special of this episode, I should say, of Mansions and Murders, and there's not been a murder yet. I mean, you could argue that this isn't a, a slow, prolonged murder. Yeah, letting attempted a woman in this murder. Guy, an attempted murder. They allow Tony to see her because they think this is it. It's 105. She's got pneumonia. But she rallies and comes back, and she manages to live an additional— she lives a year from when they rescue her from those conditions without her son overlording her. So she gets—the end of her life is is lovely. Yeah. But the criminal investigation into how she was treated is prolonged and ongoing, and the lawsuit continues. I think I did. I not write down the actual. I wrote down all these dates, and I didn't write down the date she actually passed away. What kind of a fucking producer am I? <laughs> well, she lives a year from two thousand and seven, so we can do math. We're gonna guess. We can that do this level of math. Ish. She, so I guess she dies when she's either one hundred and five or one hundred and six. But um. She passes away, and as we said, she had her last year of life in, in comfort and happiness. So, but the criminal investigation continues, and a grand jury has no qualms about indicting Tony Marshall and the attorney that he brought in to swindle his mother out of her fortune, Francis Morrissey. The charges include improperly obtaining about $14 million. And we, we didn't mention this earlier, but there was a discovery 
Um, let's see. I, I The booth is providing me with the August 13th, 2007. Roberta Brooke Astor left this mortal plane. 2007, so... Roberto? I, Ro- Roberta. <laughs> Roberta? Roberta. Roberta. I don't know. It just sounded I more high Roberta. society. Roberta. Roberto. Yeah. Roberto Brooke Astor. Yeah. I, I like I like men, so I make everything male. Um, I think Brooke Astor would be a great basis for a drag queen if I somebody hasn't done it she already. Would be fabulous, like Betty Davis, like a cheerful Betty Davis. A cheerful drag queen. Betty Davis, absolutely. Anyway, back to the crime part Meanwhile, of this because it is true crime TV yes. club. The charges that are Every brought is true. Tony Marshall and Francis Morrissey are indicted for improperly obtaining fourteen million dollars, not paying proper federal tax on the painting he sold. We're back to the painting again. And Morrissey, the lawyer, is charged with conspiracy and, oh, uh, yeah, wait for it, forging Brooke Astor's signature, which is like a big crime. Wow, bad. Yeah. Charlene is not charged with anything. Because nobody cares about her still, (laughs) even now. Nobody cares. Everybody knows she's a bitch and nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares about poor Charlene. Poor Charlene. Tony is convicted. On 14 counts of fraud, grand larceny, and conspiracy, he is let out of jail early because he is so fucking I old. I mean, considerably early. He spends eight weeks in jail on a six or seven, like a more substantial yeah. year, multiple year sentence. He serves eight weeks and then is dumped back into Charlene's lap to take care of him because he is a doddering old man himself. Here's where I think I might have misheard something. What? Charlene was apparently allowed to keep fourteen million of what the they two got of them out of were. her. They still were. They were going to squeak by on fourteen. So million have they? Did they divide that in half? Like because they were they were charged with improperly obtaining fourteen million, or did I just hear the same number twice mistakenly? That's what they said that they they were allowed to keep fourteen million of the money of the, because he was entitled to a part of her estate, right? Something that comes up in the course, I think he goes down for this in the in the court case, is that he was charging a one million dollar a year estate management fee for Holly Hill, which nobody said was justified. That he had basically yeah, nothing the to do with the said managing he was running estate. The place I was running the estate. It yeah. was not being run by um, by uh, Tony at all. He so was taking no responsibility. So. That's kind of the end of the episode. And so after he watched the episode, Eric Shaw Quinn called me and said, are you sure you want to do this because there is no murder in this mansion? there is no murder. It's just a lot of mansions. So, I don't know. Maybe that's a question for the in party my, people. Do you need murder, a Armin, murder in your podcast? It's still a crime and it's a big a crime. scandal. It's a it's big true crime. crime TV club. It's not the murder club. Yeah. So. We could do shoplifting if we want. We could do Winona Ryder's shoplifting case. Oh, are we allowed to talk about that anymore? Or is it ancient history? Um, I don't think that's ever going away. I don't think it's ever going away. I think that's permanent. I really don't. Permanent. So I, um, my takeaway, the thing that I will think about when I remember this episode was my desire. I don't, I never want to justify criminal behavior, but I don't think it always comes completely out of a vacuum. And I think what I saw here, as I said repeatedly throughout this episode of our podcast, was rage and a desire to punish his mother. And in the very beginning, we sort of skipped over what sounds like a dreadful childhood. Your birth father breaks your mother's jaw. He gets kicked to the curb. Thank God. Um, you've 
basically adore your second, her second husband, your stepfather. Do you take his name? Then he's out of the picture. I don't know how that happened or what the circumstances were of that. He died, didn't he? Did he Can't die? Remember. I he's think he died. Yeah, I think you're right. Her second, uh, yeah, he after Buddy's death, yeah, and then she marries this unbelievably powerful rich person, and he doesn't want you anywhere around. So that's got to fuck with you. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know that it has to, but I think you can certainly let it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you're so wise, Eric Shockwell. I, I know, that, I know, I, yeah. You know, life is shaped more by how you deal, more by you than your circumstances. Right, our response to things, yeah. So, I, you know, I think he certainly, he chose to react badly and felt hostility. I think it was probably, to me, my impression, because she didn't seem like a malign person, but she seemed like that from that era of um of of time where upper class parents were more sort of estranged from their children mm-hmm. they were handled by servants and went away to boarding school and had less of the connection and i think he interpreted that as rejection mm. mm-hmm. you know like what she was doing in her ever upwardly mobile marriage um program was providing him quite a remarkable life. Right. And rather than seeing that, he saw that he was not being he was not the center of her world. Right. And and the other thing it made me think of is like this is not somebody who was banished to the plains of South Dakota. He was managing her foundation. He was in her life. He was meeting these remarkable people. He was publicly her son. This is somebody, so, an impatient person who right. wound up with $14 million. I mean, she was old and was going to go, and he couldn't wait any longer. Yeah. Ugh. And I don't know if it was entirely the influence of, of Charlene, though she did not fare well in the press. You know, I don't know the insides of the story. I think she may have been pressuring him. Uh, to some degree, and I think it was getting to be later in life, but it would be like if Prince Charles started, you know, giving Queen Elizabeth a shove every time she got mm-hmm. near the top of the stairs yeah. because he didn't want to wait to be king any longer. Right. It had that kind of quality to it. Right. How about we go on a horseback ride along these cliffs? What do you say, Mother? Yeah. It was. I don't know why he couldn't simply have been a more patient person because— I don't think he would have fared badly. Well, I think there's a there's a seed of it in this idea of Charlene discovering that the, if Tony dies before his mother, the trust fund is going to go to charity. Like, that's yeah, that's that's a statement. You are not in this family, and you will know. I think it was probably, as you're pointing out, her position in the family that poured the fuel on this fire. I think so. Way more than his position. But it know? seems like he was even even before that, had the disposition of being a bit of a skinflint and a lot more alarmist about, she's spending up my inheritance mm. rather than simply being, you know, somebody who was enjoying right. the, the benefits of being the child. Well, and maybe some woman. judgment of what she was spending it on because she was buying a lot of clothes. That's what they kept going back to. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, she's got $100 million. She can buy as much clothes as she wants. She wasn't. It didn't say she was gobbling up real estate, and you know, or property. Like, well, and it wasn't like there was an income for the money either. It wasn't like it was a finite amount right. that she was spending capital. There was, it was, a, it was a substantial Vincent didn't leave her with nothing like mm-hmm. a real estate baron in New York probably left her with a sizable amount of property right. from which she could actually, you know, draw income to um, supplant mm-hmm. um, the, 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 um, 
the the capital itself. So I don't think that I that may not have been true. She may have been blazing through the capital, in which case he might have been more alarmed. But but that doesn't seem to have been the case either. Judging from the the secretary saying, yeah, sixty million dollars. Yeah. Sixty is, million is not broke. Yeah, I absolutely again. There's a lot of story here that they couldn't fit into an hour. I feel like I say that every week. But with, cer- with certain stories, like, I didn't say that with Red Rum, the Christmas murder special. No, I think they covered it. Or wait, no, I did say that, I think, even with them. Because I was like, I think the son, the son's relationship with his parents wasn't gone into it. And enough to you tell enough. But, like, yeah, there's there were so many significant, possibly famous players in this that I wanted to see there included. Really were. This was really the story that needs like a six-part Netflix documentary rather than a one-hour. Really and they really got involved. It was yeah. the, the celebrities were not shy about coming to a rescue because she really was beloved. Yeah. Like I think that was the biggest miscalculation on the part of – if she'd been – like what happened to Leona Helmsley at the end? Does anybody what know? What did happen to Leona yeah. Is she dead? Did she die? I think so. What happened? Facebook party people. What happened to Leona Helmsley? But Come you know tell what I mean. Us on our like Facebook it wasn't page. like people yeah. came. Like everybody's worried about that. But Brooke was beloved. Yeah. And so when they saw that they had done her wrong, elder abuse of somebody that everybody loves, it's like beating up Santa Claus. You yeah. Know, it was like, oh no, that won't do. Yeah. They throw the all. words up on the screen in big bold type: elder abuse. Yeah. yeah, which is what it really was, and it was a you know it was the, as that was coming into you. You know what else is elder abuse? What those reenactments? Those are elder abuse. You think that because she was an older actress, they were? I, I think there were further elder abuse on Brooke Astor to reenact her life in that way. My favorite was the Tony actor. Like they would have him look into the camera and sort of <laughs> dip Nixon his jowls yes. a little bit. My mother has to mean no something. sense of finances at all. We must rein her in. I am evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just terrible. It was yeah. just they were just. It was god. They were just. What is it? Reincraptacular. Hashtag reincraptacular. Reprotacular. I'm open to other suggestions if our party people want to come onto our Facebook page for the dinner party show and give us suggestions for the perfect phrase for terrible reenactments. I'm down with that. I'm open. I'm not I'm not gonna be precious. Yeah, it seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect there, but it's really close. Saturday Night Live years ago did a, a skit that was basically an Oscars for reenactors. And you know, like the nominees would be for the man who played Lou Rawls' stomach in that motel scene for the whatever, you know. Anyway, when I when I bitch about crime show reenactments, I usually get people like pushing back like it's work for actors and it's blah, 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 blah. and I'm like oh, fuck off. <laughs> it's not it's like there's other work for actors. Yeah, in a field with 98% unemployment at all times. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could be a little more sensitive to that. Fine, I'll be sensitive, but I think it's great and I, we see this on other specials. I'm going to call them the expressionistic reenactments, which is they're voiceless. They're soundless. Oh, yeah. It's the talking that where it's they really the blow talking. it. talking. When there's really going to be a problem is where you're going to have the – if you're just going to have them walk through the frame, I always think of the Bobby Moynihan reenactment of the woman yes, walking out of your the, favorite. from the David Petraeus scandal. That was really the best reenactment ever. But he didn't speak. No, he didn't speak. He didn't speak. And I will say this. I think that there are some conversations that we, we have recurrently, if that's a word, here on Christopher and Eric. And I think – Christopher hates reenactments is one, and also Christopher and Eric are dieting. They'd like to tell you about it is another one, and I think we need to watch out 
or the party people will revolt and turn against us and ask us to stop talking about these things. So maybe I should be more restrained. Or stop dieting. Or restrained. Or stop dieting and send us <laughs> cookies and biscuits. Um, but the reenactment thing, I will promise not to make an issue out of every time. But these were these were particularly terrible. They were particularly. Oh, you'll never. That's a promise you will never be able to. Well, keep. I'll try to be more specific because it's so, it's so part and parcel of this particular genre. Like if we're going to watch trashy, um, but I true crime TV shows, there's going to be bad reenactments. They're just you can't. I like, know. I, we're going I back know. to Red Rum for another oh, dive at some point. In the, in and those head. were those no. were really nightmarish. Nightmarish. Not since and only half an hour. Like yeah. that was my favorite. Well, that was just... the thing when you called me and said, "Do you re- are we really going to do this one? It's only thirty minutes." I'm like, "It was. It felt so much longer because yeah. it was so terrible." It was really a yeah slam dunk. I Bam. love to be drowned in archival photographs and footage. I know there's not always footage of everything, which is the Ken problem. Burns. But I love archival. Not that. Not quite Ken Burns. That's that's at another level. But I'm fine with Dateline where it's like it's a bunch of photos of them from their bachelorette parties that they just show over and over again because I feel like I'm not getting to know the person, but I'm I'm getting a glimpse of them that's like an a, a, the term expressionistic keeps coming back. It's like a it's a fleeting moment captured oh. in time that reveals their soul. <laughs> All right, we're going to stop. We're going to stop this right fucking now. I think, yeah, wow. I think you have really stretched the, uh, the interpretation of true crime TV to its tensile <laughs> limits. Look, I'm a very visual, superficial person, and I and I, and I want Brooke Astor to not have a shitty Bozo the Clown wig when her hair didn't look it like that in real really life. It was. It was the, you could almost see the seams in it. It was really, it was a bad wig. Yeah, it was, it was a bad very, thing. definitely not a lace front. She was definitely, yeah, it was a bad thing. Okay. Next so, episode. What's next? We are um, we are going, and this is why I threw out the dieting caution because this topic could go that direction uh, really you know fast. It's gonna happen. You know it's going to happen. Eric and I, as we've been doing, we're doing one week on True Crime TV Club, one week off. We're off next week from True Crime TV Club, but it will be our birthday <gasps> period weeks. It will be the episode closest to our birthdays. I'm March 11th. Eric is March 16th. Right? I got it right. I did. I'm so glad I got it right. I looked it up on your Facebook page before we started recording today. <laughs> and so we're going to talk about how we're bitter old bitches. So basically, it's going to be the same as every week. I'm not a bitter old bitch. <laughs> I am. I'm an old bitch, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> Elder abuse. Um, yeah, no, I, I, we're going to reflect on, on this passage of time, you know, and, and how you're so talk about spry mm-hmm. and how I always have aches and pains, even though I'm, I'm the about, Brooke Astor in this story. You're the Brooke Astor and oh God. And just don't be the Tony. Don't be the fucking Tony. I'll, I'll be the Ramon. I like gardens. <laughs> Yeah, you're such an outdoors. I'm such type. an outdoors type. Mr. Green Thumb. I'm Mr. Green Thumb. How yeah. are all of those plants at your house? <laughs> Dad, they died. <laughs> the plants in my house died. But yeah, we're going to be talking about our birthdays. We'll, we'll be talking about whatever crazy crap falls into our heads. It'll just be like another hour of, of listening to us yammer at you because that's kind Who of knows? the point of this podcast. Who knows? Maybe we'll even find time to talk about sauce and frosting. But I, I don't it. think so. We're out of time again. We're busy. We're okay, well, we got to go now. Until next week, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. <laughs>